Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the, those of you who thought you were coming to the 815 service. <laughs> Glad you're here. Glad you are here today. When I was in high school, one of my best friends was Vince. Vince was what we called a man who was good at everything, especially in athletics. Vince Uter was our, our three-sport champion of our, of our high school. Yeah, football, all league. Basketball, all league. Baseball, all league. And in our high school, you got stripes to determine your greatness. And Vince had stripes coming up and down his arm on both sides. He was good at everything. Now, today, you are going to see Jesus Christ as good at everything. In fact, one of the verses that we're going to read literally says that. He does everything well. And I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to show you four aspects, four stripes on Jesus' arm, if you will, of his greatness. First of all, you're going to watch him in the final six months of preparation with his disciples. So this is amazing leadership development that's taking place here. You'll watch him care for them. You'll watch him confront them. But they have got to get the gospel thing right because he's about to turn his face toward Jerusalem. So leadership development, number one, mentoring. Number two, you'll see his incredible capacity to feel the need of an individual even in the midst of a crowd. And you will watch him zone in on two individuals desperately in need for God. Third, you will see him with his amazing capacity to reach masses of people. We've seen that before, haven't we, in our study of Mark? You're going to see it again where thousands come and he understands what they need in his teaching and his works. So the masses. And then finally, the fourth thing you're going to see about him and I'm going to hit on this really strong, so get ready for it. Jesus is going to start challenging the national and the global powers today. He's no longer going to play around. He's going to challenge evil even in the massive leadership over societies. So a man of all seasons, leaders, his gang, they got to get it right. Two, caring for the individual. Three, masses of people. And if he can care for masses of people, then he can care for you now. Four, he is going to go straight at it against evil powers that are working within the world of religion and government. Ready, set, go. Open Bibles, turn them on. Mark chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. No. I do have a large passage. We're going to guide you through uh, over 30 verses today. <laughs> Help me! Um, we're starting in, in Luke chapter... <laughs> Mark. Thank you. Mark chapter 7 verse 31 is where we begin. If you have the... Using the Bibles we provide for you in the church, it's on page 998. 998. Now, just before I start reading, take a look at this map. Last week, Pastor Rob took us to Tyre. 
He reminded us that as Jesus left the Sea of Galilee area and moved toward Tyre, he was moving away from a dominant Jewish population to those that we call Gentiles, which is people like most of us. That's where he does the amazing miracle of deliverance in Tyre. Today, you will see that he moves north even further into Lebanon, up into Sidon, and then comes down the backside across the river Jordan down in the east through the tetrarchy of Philip into Syria and then to the Decapolis. The Decapolis is ten cities, ten cities that are like many Romes. It's Rome away from Rome, they call the Decapolis. He's primarily now going to be ministering to Gentile peoples as well as Jews. And he's pulled away from the major population centers. Why? because of the time he needs with his guys. We think that this period that we're going to go through today encompasses about six months in the life of Jesus Christ. And most of it you don't see in print because it's going to be the one-on-ones, the one-on-twelve, the one-on-seventy with the disciples. Okay? So that's our background. And now we move into the first of the stories. Verse 31, chapter 7. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, he went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of Decapolis. So there's our setting. 32. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them all not to tell anyone, but they did so. The more they kept talking, they just kept talking and talking and talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. There's our core theme. They said, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, this is an amazing story. This is the first healing of somebody who cannot hear and cannot talk. Uh, notice how this man gets to Jesus. It says, some people brought him to him. You see this all throughout the scriptures. And get this, everybody. Friends bring friends to Jesus. It hasn't changed a bit. Friends bring friends to Jesus. Uh, the way that your neighbors will come to church if they don't have a church home is because you will invite them and bring them with you. Easter, we've got five Sundays after this Sunday before Easter. We could double attendance on Easter if friends bring friends. That's the Sunday they'll come. So no difference still today. You'll see it again later in the text too. But then once he gets here and Jesus gets with him, look what Jesus does, 33. He takes him aside away from the crowd and so he gets alone with him. Remember how I talked about Jesus' intimacy one-on-one -on -one with people in need? This should encourage you if, if you need a special touch from God this week. This is Jesus pulling him aside one-on-one. -on -one. And look what he does. Then he uses sign language. And he puts his fingers in the man's ears. 
as if to say, get ready, this is going to happen. And then he takes saliva and touches the man's tongue. Now, everybody in the room is saying, what's the deal with saliva? Okay, that's got to be the question of the hour, I know. <laughs> to us, it just seems gross. But in this age, saliva was considered to have curative properties to it. In fact, we even have in, in uh, Suetonius, the Roman historian, we have a scene where he encourages Emperor Vespasian to use saliva to touch a man that needs to be healed. The emperor chooses not to do it, and we know why. The guy wouldn't have been healed. All right. so, so saliva, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of the same thing. When your child or your grandchild cuts their finger, what do they do with the finger? Saliva, immediately into the mouth. Water cleanses, purifying, etc. That's the best we can do with it. Jesus is actually using the stuff of this man's world to guide him into the understanding of the supernatural. So he touches the tongue. He's going to give him hearing. He's going to give him speech. And he has to. You know why? Because this man can't hear the gospel. He can't get his eternal healing. And incidentally, all of us cry out to be healed in this way or that way or our friends or our family to be touched physically, emotionally, mentally, etc. I know, I know, I know, I know. But the greatest need of all is the eternal healing that only comes from hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to heal this man for two reasons. One, this man deserves to be made well in this world. And two, this man desperately needs to know he can be forever with God. So off it happens here. Touches him. He makes all things well. Now notice one other thing. I won't spend much time on it. But verse 34. Jesus looks up to heaven and with a deep sigh. The, the, the Greek there is a deep groaning of soul. And he says, Ephatha. He uses the Aramaic. So think of compassion. Think of Jesus. And just hear him say, Ephatha. Compassion of Jesus for a lost world. Compassion of Jesus for you and your world. He cares. It hits him all the way down. It also is a sign to these people. It's a sign that he is the Messiah. I'm going to put a passage on the screen for you now that's one of the great messianic passages written 700 years before Jesus Christ comes. But read what it says. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, and he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout or sing for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. This is a prediction of what will happen as Messiah comes to the earth. And so all the people in the Decapolis, all throughout the lands, verse 37, they're overwhelmed. He has done everything well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. From there, Chapter 8, verse 1. 
During those same days, another large crowd gathered together. And since they had nothing to eat, uh, Jesus calls to the disciples and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days. They have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way. This is serious hunger. Because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote desert place can anyone get enough food to feed them? Verse 5, How many loaves do you have? Said Jesus. As the great philosopher Yogi Berra says, This is deja vu all over again. Do you remember a few weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000? They go to the Lord. Lord, these people there, you've got to send them home to get food. In this place, they're too far away from being able to get any food, even if they did head for home. And in the previous passage of the 5,000, Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have, guys? And he does it again. They answer and they say, um, well, we have seven. Watch me in this. We, we, we have seven. They're little barley loaves. We have seven. We, we, we have, we have seven. Mine. And so Jesus starts his training of the disciples. He takes their seven. He blesses he multiplies. Fisher added, blesses. He multiplies. 4,000 people are completely fed. And what happens at the end? How many baskets are left over? Seven. We have seven hours. Now the seven. The word for basket there doesn't mean lunchbox like it did with the feeding of the 5,000. The word basket here means something large enough to carry a human body. Because it's actually the same word that is used when the Apostle Paul will be dropped down in a basket from the Damascus city wall in, in Acts chapter 9. These are huge and they're full and they're overflowing. What's the lesson? What's the lesson? Humans have a tendency to say mine. God has a tendency to say, let it go. And when God's people release what they have, God promises to bless everybody in the process. Generosity. I thought this would be a good time to remind us of the great text in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to even store it. Jesus is pressing this into his guys' lives. If they don't get rid of the selfishness issue, of the fear issue, They'll never be able to spread the gospel throughout the world. They've got to get this. And we've got to get this. It's about money. It's about time. It's about our talents and our gifts and our skills. 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, they aren't yours anymore. They belong to God. And when God's people freely say, God, what you have given me, I return to you. The promise is everyone gets blessed. Marie and I have seen this for 35 years in our marriage. We've seen it on the money side. We've seen it on the time side. We've seen it on the giving away gifts and skills side. You can't outgive God. Watch and see. Seven massive baskets. As if he's saying, get this, you guys. Oh, I like it. All right. Now, one more thing in this story. How in the world did 4,000 people get there in the Decapolis? It's desert regions. The cities are far apart. And the first time it was in the Decapolis, they kicked him out. Well, they didn't, you can't kick Jesus out. They asked him to go, and he was willing. You remember? The pigs, the demons, that's the Decapolis. But what else happened in the Decapolis? One amazing healing. The garrison demoniac with a legion of demons who had been chained to stone for his protection and protecting others from him. A veritable giant of power, uncontrollable, was tamed by the mere words of Jesus Christ, come out. And he was made new. And when he wanted to follow Jesus, remember what Jesus said to him, everybody? Jesus said, no, 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 don't come with me. I'm heading up over to Galilee here. You go and tell your people what God has done for you. I think it is the witness of the garrison demonic who's now been made new that probably stimulates a lot of this. As you know, I'm a student of the life of Billy Graham. And in 1949 is when Billy Graham became famous. He became famous in September 49, Los Angeles, California. He was going to be speaking for three weeks. It turned into six because multitudes started coming. One of the main reasons crowds came wasn't because of Billy Graham. It was because William Randolph Hearst came, the great newspaper magnate. It was because Mickey Cohen came, the famous gangster. It was because movie stars were coming and the masses started to follow. I don't know for sure, but I think that this man who had been so amazingly made new by Jesus was witnessing everywhere. Oh, and incidentally, he didn't know much yet, but he just told people what he knew. And so can I say that to us too? You haven't been delivered of 6,000 demons. But if you know Jesus Christ, he's made you new. You don't really have to know a lot more than that to be able to tell other people. You just tell them your story. And so I have this quote for us, which I think is even better than a Yogi Bearism. You don't have to know more to witness. You just have to witness more with what you already know. Most of us are educated far beyond the level of our obedience. You don't have to know a whole lot more to witness, but you have to witness more with what you already know. Yeah. Well, just another takeaway from there. All right, let's press on. Now, watch what happens starting in verse 10. He gets into the boat and he 
with his disciples and he heads to the region of Dalmanutha, Magdala. He's actually going from the east side of the lake, the Decapolis region. Now he's heading west over to where the population base is, where it's 90% Jewish people, and also where his great detractors and, in fact, those that have become enemies are. Verse 11, the Pharisees came. They began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And look at verse 13. So he left them, he gets back in the boat, and he goes to the other side again. He didn't stay long. And who met him? The detractors. You say, well, maybe they were honest that they just want to know more about Jesus. No, no, no. Look what it says. They began to question him to test him. There's nothing wrong in questioning Jesus Christ. Study, learn, ask questions. But if the attitude of the will is already settled, you are in danger land. Listen, it's not your reasoning that'll keep you from God. It's not your emotions that'll keep you from God. Your will will. And these people, starting in chapter 3, had already started plotting to kill Jesus. There's no curiosity in them. There's no God hunger that's leading them toward Jesus. These Pharisees are out to find whatever they can to trap him, to move their legal system along, and they will get their way. Kind of. More on that on Easter. <laughs> so make no mistake about it. Jesus' response to these people, look, it says deep groaning again. Different Greek word. But whereas the first one was epitha, this one is, ah! That's how strong it is. Deep groaning. Why do these people cry out for the sign to test, to accuse, to betray? Why? In the Gospel of John, Jesus cries out to these same people. You read the Bible because you think in the Scriptures you have eternal life, but they speak of me, and then Jesus says, and you refuse to believe. Now part of the reason they refuse is they don't want their apple cart turned over. They run the Jewish system. The religious system is also strongly political. There's massive power there. And he's challenging it from top to bottom. He doesn't stay long. And so I say to everybody here, ask every question you've got. Take your feelings to God. But realize it's going to come down to, will you surrender your will to Jesus Christ? We believe that God is calling you to do so. We believe that God is an electing God who calls people to himself. I pray that none here do what those Pharisees were doing. Let's move on. He heads back across the sea again. He went from east to west, stays a brief time, groans deeply in his spirit, confronts the Pharisees, heads back. Verse 14, 
The disciples had forgotten in this journey to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, verse 15, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Stop. Important. They're back in the boat. They're heading back east again. And Jesus says to his disciples, be careful. Be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Be careful of the yeast of Herod. Yeast, by and large, in the scriptures, has to do with corrupting spirit. Something that can start small and can spread deeply. Have you ever been around a cynic? Have you ever walked into a room happy, like Winnie the Pooh? And Eeyore's there? How long does it take for an Eeyore to take a Winnie the Pooh and drive them right? I guess it is a bad day. It's going to be 44 today. I know, but it's going to snow on Wednesday. <laughs> be careful of corrupting influences. And when he mentions the Pharisees and Herod, he's very serious. These are the national and global powers he's going to engage. Herod, of course, represents governmental power and authority and control. Herod is a vassal of Rome. This is Jesus against Rome. Someone will say to him later, Herod's looking for you, and Jesus says, tell that fox where he can find me. He will engage the powers of control Incidentally, I just don't get it why we in our Western civilization put all our lock, stock, and barrel in governments to save us. I don't know why we do it. It has never worked. And, and the media institution, the sphere of media, they're sold out to it too, lock, stock, and barrel. It's not it. It's important, it's God-given, but it's not the end-all. The end-all is God in his world, spreading his kingdom. Be careful, guys, of thinking the governmental authority. Be careful of thinking, he's saying to his disciples, of Messiah being a government leader, ruling a military. Don't go there. And the Pharisees? He just had it out with them on the other side of the lake. What do they represent? A repressive religious system that says goodness is the only way you get God's approval. A repressive religious system that says goodness, being good enough, is the only way you can get God's approval. Obey, obey, obey. Rule, 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 rule. Now may I say... That is as prevalent in today's world as it was in the time of Jesus. Almost anybody I meet and I ask them uh, if, if, if they think God loves them and will they go to heaven, they'll say, well, I, I think I'm good enough. I bet you 90% of us either have had or still have that perception that our goodness earns God's approval. Let me tell you how dangerous that is on two levels, okay? One, if it's your 
degree of goodness that earns God's approval and you think you're good enough? Why is that a danger? Pride. I don't really have to have God. I'm doing pretty well on my own. And if you think you are, then you won't find him. One danger is pride. Watch the other side. If you think that you're already awful and that you're a person who struggles with shame and you are told that you have to be a whole lot better to get God's approval in your life, what's that do to you? It drives you deeper and deeper into the wormhole. There's no hope for me at all. One leads to pride, the other leads to shame, and both will lead people from God. So I have no trouble when Jesus goes after the Pharisees because they represent hybrid works-based righteousness. Let me just say it again. For those of you that struggle on the pride side, you are not good enough for God's approval. And for brothers and sisters and friends who struggle with feeling they have any value at all, God loves you right where you are. And there's nothing you have ever done. There's nothing you ever do. There's nothing that has been done to you that takes away the value he sees in you. Okay? So watch out. Watch out for the Herodians. Watch out for the Pharisees. Okay, on we go. On we go. Verse 13. We're back again at that point. They've crossed the sea. They head on over. Be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, now we're going to watch him deal with his disciples again. Watch this. This is really fun. They heard Jesus say that, in, probably in the boat. Watch out for the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees. And then it says 16. They discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> I just don't get it. These guys are really dense. They will be again next week too. It doesn't get a lot better for them. Uh, I guess if God can use them, he can use us, huh? Okay, it must be because we have no bread. All right, verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them. <laughs> it doesn't say he groaned here, but I bet he did. <laughs> Why are you talking about having no bread? Don't you see or understand or your heart's hardened? He's talking about these major issues in human existence that will keep people from God. And they're thinking, it's because we have no bread. And then look at verse 18. Do you have eyes, but you fail to see, and ears, but you fail to hear? Don't you remember, guys? When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up, Andrew? Uh, Twelve, Lord. Right. Okay, and when I broke the seven loaves, you remember that was just a few weeks ago? You remember the seven loaves? How many basketfuls did you pick up, Peter? How many basketfuls? Seven giant basketfuls, Lord. Don't you get it? 
Now, I make fun of them, but I'm just like them. I can be here with you on a Sunday morning, and, and if I have the privilege of preaching, otherwise just being with you and being in classes, it, it all does the same for me, worshiping. I'm on a high. God is great. I can change the world. But if I get home and there's no vanilla wafers, And if there's no vanilla wafers on a day when the bears lose, I see very little reason to live. <laughs> Aren't we fickle? Fickle while you work. <whistles> yeah. We are. We do this. And here's the point. They and we have to cross this chasm of believing that God won't take care of us. Because if that one holds us down, we'll never reach the planes that he wants us to reach. I hit on it earlier. I've hit it again. They're afraid they won't have enough to eat. My God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. The disciples have got to get this one. And they will. But for now, nothing is more frustrating, sorrowful than the disciples who are always afraid they won't have enough and secondly, who want Jesus to take over the government and the military. Wow. Wow. One more story. I'm glad we've got this one, verse 22. There they went to Bethsaida. So they are crossing the lake and they went to another region, not to the capitalist. They went north to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. He led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus said, do you see anything? Verse 24, he looked up, he said, I see people um, and they look like trees walking around. Verse 25. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. And his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, Go home. Don't go to the village. They'll make a spectacle out of you. You just go home and hang out. Be with your family. All right. What's going on here? It's another healing. It's just like the healing of the uh, hearing and, and, and mouth because Jesus gets alone with him, that deep care of Jesus again. He's one-on-one -on -one with him. He even uses their, their sense of something that brings healing to start it out. And he put, covers his eyes. And he says, what do you see? He says, I, I see people like trees walking. He does it again. I can see clearly now. You know, he's got it now. He's got it all. This is the only case we have in the New Testament of Jesus declaring or bringing healing, and it doesn't happen immediately, as far as we know. Progressive. Lots of speculation about it. I don't have time to go into it. But I'll tell you this. The more I thought about it, the more it gave me comfort. Because first of all, most people don't get physical healing by prayer. Some of us do, but most of us don't. That's number one. Number two, when you look at our lives, we're a lot more broken up than just in our bodies. 
and our emotions and our family of origin issues and, and all sorts of prejudices and everything that goes on inside us. Has anyone here had the experience that right when you came to Jesus, all those things went away? No. This is what we call disciple making. Day by day, we're getting better. The great prophet Paul McCartney sang about that. Got to believe it's getting better. I'm getting better all the time. Then Lennon says, you can't get any worse, Paul. I can't get no... There's that sense of progressive wholeness that God brings in his people. So I'm just fine with this, being a progressive healing. It's more the pattern of our lives. But realize this, whether you're not healed in the body here or are, whether your emotions are made right here or are not, there will come a day when we will all say, if we know Jesus Christ, I see everything clearly now. I am whole as I have been made to be whole by Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Pretty good stuff, huh? Wow. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who does all things well. Pray with me. Unto you, O oh God, we come. We come to talk to you about you and to talk to you about us. And Lord, forgive us. And Lord, if there's anyone here that thought they could only be made whole by being good enough, Lord, strip them of that. Let them know that it's only your goodness and your wholeness that makes us what we're meant to be. Lord, if there are those here that are deeply suffering with physical, emotional, or mental problems, I pray that you would enable them to see that you come near and close and personal. And I pray for any of us that need our wills broken, that you would confront us. Do it all, Lord, for you are the God who does all things well. Amen and amen.